Welcome to the Baxtonia Podcast, a podcast about life and faith by Kevin Baxter. You will find more resources, downloads, and be able to support the podcast by exploring Baxtonia.com. Our episode this week is about spiritual transformation and the first steps we need if we're truly going to become the people God meant us to be. A reading from Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17 from the New Revised Standard Edition. After this I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, from all the tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb robed in white, with palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne, and around the elders, and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped, singing, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, Who are these robed in white? And where have they come from? I said to him, Sir, you are the one that knows. And then he said to me, These are they who have come out of the great ordeal. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and worship him day and night within his temple. And the one who is seated on the throne will shelter them. They will hunger no more, thirst no more. The sun will not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Christian religion, number 687 by Emanuel Swedenborg. In the world, the process of being regenerated is represented by various things. For example, by the flowering of all things on earth in springtime and the ensuing stages of growth to the point of bearing fruit. Likewise, the stages of development that every type of tree, bush, and flower goes through from the first to the last warm month. The process of being regenerated is represented by the development of fruits of all kinds, from initial stem to ripened fruit. It is represented by the morning and evening rains and the falling dew that cause the flowers to open as they also close themselves to the darkness of night. It is represented by fragrances of gardens and fields and by the rainbow in the clouds. It is also represented by the radiant colors of sunrise. The process of being regenerated is also represented in a general way by the constant renewal of all things in the body, by chyle and animal spirits, and then blood. Blood is constantly being purified of worn-out elements and renewed and, in a sense, regenerated. If we look even to the lowliest creature on earth, we see an image of the process of regeneration in the miraculous transformation of silkworms and of the many other grubs and caterpillars into nymphs and butterflies and of other creatures embellished with wings. To these 
we might add a lighter example, the desire of some songbirds to splash in the water in order to wash and cleanse themselves before returning to their singing. In brief, the whole world on every level of existence is full of symbols and emblems of regeneration. Our worship service and our readings today are about transformation. And I have to say, I hope that every worship service is actually about transformation. I mean, that's kind of the point of why we come here. You know, the book of Revelation is oftentimes avoided in church. It's avoided because, well, have, have any of you ever tried to wash your robe in blood? It doesn't come out white. Just on the literal level, if you want something to come out white, peroxide, bleach, I think OxyClean works really well. Avoid using blood as a detergent. You know, it, it, Revelation's avoided because of its symbolic nature. I think that most of us get what that's saying, right? It's not saying go out and use that as a way of getting your whites clean. It's saying that through the love of our Lord Jesus Christ, we can be purified. We get that's what it's saying. But there's a whole lot here, and it's a whole lot that's questionable. People have written books about the book of Revelation. And we'll just say it's one of those things that no one scholar, no one author has ever really cornered the market on getting. But I like it for that reason. I like it because it's highly symbolic. It falls into a classification of literature called apocalyptic literature. The book of Daniel is another good example of it. And what I love about apocalyptic literature, a lot of other books of the Bible that are not apocalyptic literature are set in such a way and in such a place that it's kind of about a group of people there. Apocalyptic literature is about now. So even though this is talking about a future time, the future time is the present, because the present's what really exists. But it's so symbolic. It's fun to engage this text. So today we have John engaging an elder. And John basically says, hey, how are things going? The elder says, who are those people over there? What's John's response? I don't know, you know. You, the elder, you're the one who knows. You tell me. Right here, the language is very confusing, very tricky, but it's trying to talk about something, and I think it's something that's essential to the nature of transformation. It's talking about humility, and it's talking about a willingness to learn. Here's John. He's writing a whole book of a vision that's being given to him by God, and in this point, he's being humble. And when he's asked a question, he defers to someone else, someone who might know better than they are. I was reading a book recently, one of my favorite authors, and there's a whole chapter written to the three most unused words in the English language, which are, I don't know. We are scared of looking like we don't know the answers. I think this is very prevalent in political times as everyone likes to posture about the reasons for why things are happening in our world. And very few people are willing to be honest 
We don't know. If the answer was easy, it wouldn't be a problem. Having the humility to say, I don't know, is the first step to opening ourselves up to the possibility of actually solving the question. If we aren't willing to even say we don't know, we don't even take the step to researching, to understanding. And in this case, John asked that question, I don't know, and was said, was told by the elder that these people were people worshiping the Lord. I believe it says specifically because they had gone through the great ordeal. Now, I've preached on this verse a few times, and actually, uh, I really fixated on that dirty white robe. I think I, I pounded the dirty white robe a little bit too much. A lot of people, when you research this, they, they focus on the, they will not hunger anymore, they will not thirst anymore, the sun will not strike them, no scorching heat, and no more tears. I don't, I don't know about you all, that sounds pretty good to me. I, I like that. I get why people want to focus on that. I get that we really want the reward that's being talked about in this passage. But you know what? I don't think the reward is the point of this passage. Okay, here's my shameless plug. You don't cross the finish line of the marathon without training. And every one of those runners who trains for a marathon, you don't train for a marathon because you think you're going to win. You train for a marathon because you love to run. You love the feeling of running. You don't say, I'm going to run, what, 20, 25 miles, 26 miles. You don't do that, and you don't start training, and you don't get good enough to even conceive of winning until you already love running. Right? You've got to be willing to put one foot in front of the other and love what you're doing in order to even think about winning. So, what does it say if we, if we think about the reward of heaven, if we think about the reward of being blessed by God with all of these great things, no tears, no hunger, no food, what does it say if what we care about is the reward and not the process of getting there? I was thinking about different words as I read this, and I, I thought about the word reward, but I also thought about the word consequence. I don't know how many people, I, I love the dictionary. I look up words I know all the time. Uh, my phone also gives me a random word every day that I can look up the definition to in hopes of expanding my vocabulary, but I sat down and I, I actually looked up the word consequences. And what's interesting to me is consequences in there was basically a statement saying a result of an effect of an action or a condition. And then following that definition, there were a bunch of examples. Every one of those examples, all negative. So things like, many have been laid off from work as a consequence of the administration's policies. 
There was no comment in the list of example sentences that said, many people got jobs as a consequence of the administration's policy. So we don't, we oftentimes think of consequence in a negative light. But there's something interesting to me about reward because reward actually is almost, a reward is something that's almost disconnected from what we do, oftentimes. It's something that we're given. When you look at the dictionary definition, it's something that's given as a result of what we did, which suggests an outside party that's offering it to us. And I want to argue that what's going on in this thing is about the consequence of what it means to worship the Lord, not the reward. To worship the Lord actually means that we are loving what we're doing. To worship the Lord means that like the marathon runner, we're doing it, we're running it. We're willing to spend our vacation days, our money, stay at double the price hotel rooms so we can run 26 miles knowing that we have no chance of winning. I mean, that's really boiled out. I have a, my uh, sister, uh, a cousin-in-law, I guess, is running in the marathon. She has no chance of winning. She comes every year, spends thousands of dollars just to run the marathon. That's impressive. What if that's how you lived your life for God? Now, I want to be clear here. I am not saying that what it means to go through the great ordeal and to worship God is to go to the temple every day and say the words on the page and do it continuously. There's a lot of symbolism in this passage. What I'm saying is, that is the attitude that we need to adopt in our life. That we love what we are doing and we are dedicating what we are doing to God. That's the purpose. And we're supposed to feel the joy that comes from doing what God wants us to do in the world. Now I need to be clear, you should still come to church. I'm not anti-church. But between today, between next Sunday, how are you living that church in your life? How are you living that worship in your life? That's what's important. It's about why we do what we do and not the what. It's about the love of even the difficulty. I've been told by marathon runners there are certain points at the race that just get hard, and then it gets easy. And then maybe another moment that gets hard, and you fight through it. And you get... I'm not saying that if you live your life dedicated to loving other people as the Lord has commanded us to do, that everything's going to be easy. Like the marathon, you're going to hit points of difficulty. And you're going to have to fight through them. But the experienced runner knows that they're coming, has tools to combat them. When we think about what does it mean to have no more thirst and no more hunger, that's really about knowing that you can push through those difficult times. It's trusting in God that if you do what's right, if you do something that you have prayed about, that you've thought about, that you're being reasonable with, that you'll get through it. You'll get through those things. 
And the wearing of the white, that white robe when I hammered on it so many times before. What does it mean that I put this on? I'm wearing this. I was specific, somebody specifically asked, I think, the first few times I preached here, I just wore my suit. Somebody asked, why don't you wear a robe? And my response was, oh, I didn't know you all wore robes here. What's the point of putting this robe on? It's a symbol. The things we wear are symbols. In this story, it's a symbol too. It's a symbol of a person who's been purified by a certain lesson. A lesson of a great ordeal. And the great ordeal is simply this. Love God more than you love yourself. That's the only lesson in the Bible. Over and over. From the Garden of Eden all the way to the book of Revelation. It's a very simple lesson. You are not the center of the universe. But through your love from God, you are a part of the completeness of the universe. So why then church? If, all we, can, if we can go out and just love doing whatever our profession is, what's the value of church? This is what I feel I have to say in order to keep the industry alive, of course. <laughs> Cliff will know this from being at my church in Cambridge for my seven years. We had a weekly reading group. One of the downsides of going to the week, weekly reading group, I mean, it was a great thing, transformative, I think, every time. I don't know if there was a single Sunday that my sermon was not so heavily influenced by that reading group. Because the things we surround ourselves with enter us and become us. So if you spend a two-hour time period reading and studying something during the week, that becomes part of who you are. If you come to church, you listen, you engage with your heart, it becomes a part of who you are. So during the week, you can practice what you're learning on Sundays. These are the springs of truth that the Lord leads us to. When we engage in studying the word, when we engage in worshiping, when we engage prayerfully in bringing our problems before the Lord, the springs of truth are the waters that refresh us and fill us and give us guidance. So on this day, when we ask ourselves the question of what does it mean to be a child of God, because we're building towards Pentecost. We're building towards a time where we ritually celebrate the sending out of the disciples. This is a time when we ask ourselves a question of what does it mean for me to be a child of God? The Lord tells us in our reading from John, the people come up to him and say, are you the Savior? Jesus, are you the Savior? Jesus does not really say he's the Savior all that often, but his disciples know because they hear his voice. So the question I have is are you too busy talking and asking God to do what you want God to do? Or are you hearing the voice of God? In other words, are you opening yourself up to hearing the love and the call for people around you who need love? Because if you do that and you bring that to God in prayer and through study, you will not have questions of how you should respond. You will know what you are capable of doing. You will know what your resources are that can help.
You will be washed in the innocence of the Lamb, and you will be prepared for Pentecost. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Bextonia Podcast. The podcast is available on iTunes or by going to bextonia.com where you can find other resources and support the podcast.